Hey y'all, welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you at some point um, and get to sit down and get to know you some. Uh, I just want to say here at RUF, we care, I mean, sincerely care about what's going on inside of you, inside of your heart, more than anything else that you're doing externally. That we, we want you to do is to actually know Jesus and be changed by him, to see if he's real or if he's not, um, to find rest in him. Like, that is much more important to us than, you know, any external things that you've got. Like, if you're an incredible leader, if you can bring lots of people in, um, whatever, the most important thing to us is that you'd actually know Jesus and find rest in him. Um, and if you're a great leader and you bring other people, that's great. Um, that's a cherry on top. But what we really want is for you to meet God and to find rest in him. So that's our hope for y'all as we do RUF, as we sing songs, as we have community groups and small groups. Uh, if you haven't signed up on our listserv yet at this point, we'd love for you to sign up on that. Um, see us before you leave. Um, and if you want to do Mystery Fellowship Dinner and you didn't get an email, you don't have an app, that's okay. See us and we can hook you up with that as well. So uh, this semester we're going through the book of Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. And uh, basically, it's the story of God saving his people from slavery and bringing them into freedom. And so, I'm going to read uh, Exodus chapter 9 now. And this is kind of an unusual sermon. Uh, whenever you're preaching a book of the Bible and you've got like 12 sermons to do it in, uh, it gets tricky at times. And so, uh, I'm going to do my best shot at the biblical plagues, which is like 10 plagues uh, tonight. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but I'm just going to read about this one plague, uh, the seventh plague of hail, um, H-A-I-L. I'm from Alabama, so it gets weird <laughs> with the vowels. <laughs> no lie, one time in college I had a linguistics professor who was Israeli ask me, uh, as I was answering a question in class, what country are you from? <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is the seventh plague, uh, the plague of hail, Exodus chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field in a safe shelter. For every man and beast that's in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on him. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. Whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually amidst the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. 
Moses said to him, As soon as I've gotten out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. It's God's word. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, uh, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the way in which you make yourself known through it. And I pray that you would help us to see and understand really and truly who you are tonight. That you'd meet us in our tiredness, that you'd meet us in our anxieties, you'd meet us in our fears. Lord, in our sadness over uh, natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes, which have been so prevalent lately. Lord, give us comfort. Help us find grace and truth for our lives and lives of those whom we care for. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, So I read an article uh, in the New York Times not long ago. I guess it came out about a year ago, and it's called Generation Adderall. And uh, (laughs) and it was actually it was written by a young woman, really good writer, very vulnerable. And I know some of y'all have heard of Adderall. Some of y'all take it. Um, Strictly speaking, it's generally prescribed for ADHD, but it's kind of been widely recognized, kind of across the board, that. Not everyone who takes Adderall is actually have a, a prescription for it, and this is actually the case of this young woman. She said that she was an undergrad at Brown, and she'd been kind of complaining to one of her friends about how much work she had to do and how she was way behind on this five-page book report that she had to turn in the next day. And her friend says to her, well, why don't you just take some Adderall? And she pulls out a little tinfoil pouch, and she hands her two blue pills, And her friend says, you know, when I take it, I feel like I'm going to just go through the roof, and I cannot sleep all night, and I I can't handle it. Just You take mine. And the woman who was writing said, when her friend said that, it was like, this is exactly what I need right now. And she takes the Adderall, and she goes into the quiet part of Brown's library, and she sits down there, and she is focused. And she just piles on words and creativity and she bangs out this five-page paper, and before you know it, like it's pink in the sky, and who knows where the time has gone, and she, she crushed it. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And before long, she just keeps taking more and more and more, and she starts to realize, you know, I don't know where I end and Adderall begins. And... I have become this steely, focused person that is able to just do as much work as I need to do and maintain a social calendar, and I can sleep like three hours a night, but I'm also like running 10 miles a day, and she's losing weight, and all these great things that she thinks of are happening in her life, and yet at the same time, as she's succeeding in all this stuff because of Adderall, she's losing herself. And she said it got really bad when she moves to New York after college, and she really does not know who she is apart from this drug. And this isn't like a a knock on any of us who might be on this legitimately so. This is her experience uh, of someone taking it when they shouldn't have been taking prescription medication. But from a biblical perspective, fill in this blank with me. Adderall became her blank. 
right? And there's lots of way, different ways you could fill that in. One way that you could fill it in, I think, is that you could say Adderall became her savior. That this was the way that functionally, as she was getting through the day, that she could like, make life doable and make it worth something. And we all have functional saviors that we say that to. I mean, have you ever felt this? You can almost at this point in the semester say, or hear fall break saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble of spirit. Not like your midterms, which are here to crush you. Right? Like, you can hear that at this point. I hear that. And it's like a savior. Work can be your hope. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to competency. Success, a purposeful life apart from me. Work can do this. And when that happens, you know that you've gone from something that's good to something that's a functional savior, something that's an idol. The problem with this is the Bible is pretty clear that there's only one savior and vacation is not him. But (laughs) our hearts are constantly manufacturing these kinds of idols and these functional saviors. And when that happens, it can feel like this thing that I thought was going to relieve the pressure of life, the anxiety of life, and was going to save me from how hard life is. It does some of that, sure. But what it does is it really kind of wraps me up and masters me and enslaves me. And we've all done this. And yet, God is the God of freedom and joy. And in His service, there is perfect freedom and there is true joy. And what He wants for you all is more than a master that promises good things and then takes that away. But what he wants is real freedom. And he wants real service in in the joy of fellowship with him. And that's what he has to offer us tonight. So tonight I have two points I want to make. Two points. What are the false saviors that enslave us? And who is the true savior that sets us free? What are the false saviors that enslave us? Who is the true savior that sets us free? So first, what's the false saviors? What are the false saviors? To begin with, you've got to look at what is the deal with Egypt and Pharaoh here. From the very beginning, Pharaoh has set him up, himself up as this kind of anti-savior or anti-God. Uh, he starts off by trying to deal with the Hebrew threat in Exodus 1 where he's, like trying to, he's genocidal. He's trying to wipe out the Hebrews. And this is a problem not just for the Hebrews, but it's a problem for creation. Because what God is going to do through the the Jews, is he's going to set apart this people and through them he's going to help liberate creation from slavery to sin and from evil. From them comes Jesus. And so if someone is trying to stop these people at the very beginning from that, then they are immediately setting themselves up as against God and his purposes for the world. He wants the world to be put back together through these people. And Pharaoh is saying, no, I'm going to enslave them and destroy them. And what God is saying here is that he wants not just the world to know him, not just the Israelites to know him, but the Egyptians too. I mean, look what he says here. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God's work through his people is always not just for them, but it's for the whole world. You are saved not for yourself, but you're saved for the people around you. You're saved for your your nation. You're safe for your globe, for the environment, for your neighborhood, for your family. But we're always saved for some greater purpose. That's just the way God works. And God is breaking through here and he's showing the Egyptians who he is 
And he's showing them also the hardness of their own hearts and what the love of their false saviors cost them. Because to set them free, God has to reveal who he is. I mean, that's what these plagues are about, right? Just look at verse 19 where God tells Pharaoh his plan of attack so that anyone who wants to get to safety from the hail can retreat under a house and save their livestock and their slaves. He's not trying to wipe these people out. He's trying to make a point. Because the plagues are not about destruction, they're about revelation, about who God is really like. And so God sends these plagues into Egypt, this land full of false gods, to show what the true God is like. Because here's what's going on with the plagues. The plagues are signs of creation. All these things that Egypt has worshipped, rebelling against the Egyptians and saying, I'm on God's side. So God has the Nile become blood. He has frogs cover everything. The Egyptians worship frogs. There's gnats and there's flies that cover everything. Livestock die. Boils cover all the Egyptians. These are the people that invented makeup. They're obsessed with beauty. Suddenly they're hideous and their skin is horrible. There's radically huge hail mixed with fire falling out of the sky. Locusts eat everything. Darkness covers the whole land. Finally, their firstborn will die. And the Egyptians thought... They had all this stuff under control. If we just worship the Nile, it'll take care of us. And the Nile is saying, no, 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 no. I'm on God's side. God takes their idols and he flips it so that they would know him. Look, modern people can protest that and say, you know, this is weird. No way could this happen. But if there is a God who made the world, like an author writes a story, then he can do this kind of thing. Look, at any point, Pharaoh could have stopped the plagues and said, you know, okay, okay, you win. You win. Uh, You're God. I'm not. I'm letting your people go. But instead, he kind of says he'll let them go, and then he pulls back and says, no, 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 I'm going to hold on to them. And what's on display with Pharaoh is not just the stubbornness of this tyrant, but the hardness of the human heart when it latches onto a functional savior, onto an idol. Look, the question that's really at stake here for us as we read this is, what would God have to do in your life to save you from your idols. What would you have to do in your life? For one, I think you have to know what those things are, right? Like functionally, what is the thing that makes your life doable? Is it work? Is it beauty? Is it success? That if you got this thing, then all the other pieces of your life would fit together and things would just run smoothly and everything would be all right. What would you, like Pharaoh, let your whole life get wrecked for If you could just keep this one thing, just absolutely devastated, but you still had that one thing, what would that be? Would it be a job that made you feel significant? Close friends? I don't know. I mean, in our heart of hearts, it can feel like so long as I have that thing, I can relax, I can just do life. What would that thing be for you? Look, what can be really hard about idols is that when we have them, they, can, they get us a lot of good things, too. And, for instance, like the people around you can compliment you on your idol, and it can feel good. I mean, say that you were this person that could really succeed and really crush stuff, and it just looked effortless from every angle what was going on. And people are like, dang, you're like this perfect person. And you know that as people tell you that, that you're really not. And you're running into that all the time on your insides. But on the outside, people are telling you, man, you're like this perfect person. And that's incredible. And it becomes this idol where 
you keep people at a distance and live on this pedestal to maintain that perfection, but inside nobody really knows you, and you're lonely, you feel like you're dying. But man, that idol gets you some stuff, doesn't it? Like, dang, you're like this perfect person. And we get caught in those idols. Where we're given something and it costs us something at the same time. And it's the thing that God has to deal with to set us free. And from the outside, we can look so good. On the inside, we can look and feel so terrible. Um, you've heard of icebergs, right? Like Titanic iceberg that ahead. <laughs> We've all seen it. What was so weird about the end of Titanic was that she said to Jack, I'll never let go, and then immediately, like, let's go. I never got that. But uh, a few weeks ago, workers in London, <laughs> that's just my opinion on Titanic. This is totally unrelated. Uh, a few weeks ago, though, workers in London discovered what they are calling a monster, so bigger than normal, fatberg, uh, like an iceberg, but made of fat, traveling through the the sewers of London and blocking everything. Totally disgusting, right? Like, horribly disgusting. Seems like we got some fans. Uh, (laughs) It weighs 130 tons. 130 tons of congealed fat traveling under the streets of London. And it's not just fat that people have dumped down their sink, but it's like everything else that you flush down your toilet, like everything mixed with that. And... These workers have to go in and they have to break it up with high-pressure hoses and take it away. And it's absolutely disgusting. One of the guys who's working on it said that the smell of the fat bird (laughs) is, it's like rancid meat and an overflowing toilet, like combined. It's like your worst nightmares. The stuff, like, horrible. And 130 tons of it, it's like the length of three football fields traveling underneath the sewer system. And the problem with it is, is if it stays down there too long, it blocks up all the sewers and it creates all this flooding. But do you know that in the part of London where the fatberg is most prevalent, I just like saying fatberg, it's awesome. (laughs) The houses above that start at like a million dollars. And so you've got on the outside, the surface, very expensive, very nice, well-manicured, high-end shops and bakeries and coffee shops and bars and very nice, like, Victorian-era houses. And below that, you've got a 130-ton fat bird. (laughs) And it's foul. And it's a picture of our idols. That we can look so good on the outside... And look so perfect and so, you know, if I was British, posh. (laughs) And on the inside, it can be like there's this horrible thing gunking up our heart. That's rancid and terrible and somebody's got to get down there to take care of it. And we just don't want to do it because it's disgusting. And we don't want to let people in there because it's gross. And yet God looks at us and says, I want to be down in there. I want to be a part of that. I want to make you clean inside and outside. I mean, Pharaoh's heart here is hard. It's hard. What does that even mean? Think about it like this. We're constantly making choices in our life. And it's happening all the time, especially in college. I mean, you have come to a period in your life where 
our culture is completely schizophrenic about what you're doing. On the one hand, college is like the crossroads of life where you're deciding, you know, grad school, maybe I'm going to meet my spouse, uh, you know, I'm going to become an adult at the end of this thing, right? Like, you're going you're gonna to work for four years and take a lot of debt so that you can have this diploma at the end of it. It's this incredibly important time where, like, it's so meaningful and it's so impactful and people look back on college and like, man, my life is totally different because of my time at UNC. And on the other hand, people are telling you, this is like your four years of get out of jail free. Like, work yourself into the ground, party as hard as you want to party, sleep with whoever you want to sleep with, and at the end of those four years, you're going to walk across a stage and all that stuff gets wiped out. And it's like a blank slate and you start over. And both those things can't be true at the same time. They just can't. What we're doing constantly in our hearts is making decisions that shape us and shape the person that we are. And as we make those decisions, it changes our hearts. The real kernel of of you, it changes that. I mean, nobody knows at what point in their life they go from saying one more like hard truth that's spoken well and they become a really honest person. And it just becomes part of their character. And on the other hand, nobody knows at one point in their life they say one more white lie and it's just a lie on top of so many other lies and they become a liar. Like not just someone who has told a lie, but a liar. Like your heart gets hardened. Your choices shape you. And that's what's happening with Pharaoh here. He's saying, oh yeah, I'll let your people go. And then he doesn't do it, and his heart gets hardened. And he becomes who he is, and it destroys him. It destroys him. I mean, it just asks, begs the question of what is sin in this? That sin is our will to do what we want to do apart from God, and our idols just shape how that's going to come across. They just shape what we're going to do. I mean, think about it like this. Uh, I think it would be pretty safe to say that at this point in our lives... Our phones have become a big part of who we are. I mean, have you ever walked out of your room and realized, oh, I don't have my phone with me, and run back in? What's the thing you always say in that? I just feel naked without my phone, right? Like, I'm so vulnerable without my phone. Like, we feel like we need to be connected all the time. And yet, as we're connected, we're looking for connection. Like, we get so much information that it's like, it's an overload of things, And so we fear this disconnection, and yet we're always hearing bad stuff happening. You're anxious a lot. You're poised to hear bad news. You hear about terrorism and mass shootings and earthquakes and hurricanes all the time. (coughs) Lots of you grew up walking through metal detectors in your school, or at least through the airport. We live in a time that tends to assume that we're not going to have safe passage. And we wonder, when is the other shoe going to drop? When is it going to fall on me? And into that is tied... This kind of magical thinking that if I have my phone and I'm connected, then I'm safe. That if I feel in control, like, then I feel connected. Or if I feel connected, then I feel in control. The two go hand in hand. And what happens, though, when we say, man, I want this thing so bad. I want to feel connected. I want to feel controlled. Or feel like I'm in control because of my phone. And then bad stuff happens anyway. And we say, you know, I wish I just chosen a different idol. I wish there was some other functional savior 
that would have rescued me here. You know, if it's not my phone, then it's something else. You know, I shouldn't have moved here. I should have moved there. I need to transfer from this school to that school. I should have chosen not to date that person because they used me. I should have dated this other person over here. I just need a different functional savior. I shouldn't have chosen that roommate. I shouldn't have chosen that major. I needed something else. We want to change things, which is just another way to get control and stop hurting. But God doesn't give us a different way to gain control. God gives himself. God shows us who he really is. Look, what God does is he makes himself known to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, to you and to me. That when your idols fail, you don't need a new idol. You need a bigger picture of God. You need to know who he really is. Throughout the plagues, we didn't get a chance to read this tonight, but throughout the plagues, God is saying, I'm going to show my finger. I'm going to show my hand as I do these plagues. He's showing part of his strength, part of who he is as he's doing this. But as the Bible goes on, God says at one point, I'm going to bear my arm. I'm going to show the full measure of my strength. And he says that in Isaiah 53, this Old Testament prophecy about Jesus. And when he says, I'm going to bear, show my arm, he says this. He says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smit my God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. By his wounds... We are healed. When God shows himself and his strength, do you know what he shows? He shows Jesus. When your idols fail, you don't need a new idol. You need to see Jesus. Look, on the night that he's betrayed, Jesus is eating dinner with his disciples, and he says, you know, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. Like you've, if you've seen me, you really have seen God. And his disciples say, well, Jesus, show us that, and that would be enough for us. And Jesus says, have I been with you all this time, and you don't know who I am? That to see Jesus, to know who Jesus is, that's what we most need. That's God's power and His strength coming in to the world, coming into your life. That on the cross, you don't just see uh, the creation upended, but you see the creation rebelling its creator to make us free and to love To set us free from idols, Jesus goes to the cross. He's the wisdom of God and the power of God, using all his strength to take out our hard hearts, to deal with the stuff in our lives that we don't want to deal with, to deal with the crap inside of you that you just are afraid to look at and you don't want other people to look at either. Like, that's what Jesus does. Everything else will capture you. Everything else will enslave you. To see Jesus, to know Jesus, to be captured by Him is freedom. And it's joy. And it's hope. And it's love. Look, do you want so bad? Are you hungry all the time for meaning? Like, do you just walk through life and you're like, what is the purpose of this all? In the gospel, you have Jesus, the ultimate meaning of the creation. God himself on a cross dying for you. That's the meaning at the heart of the world. Do you long for beauty? 
to be beautiful and to belong somewhere. On the cross, you have Jesus giving up his beauty, being marred beyond human recognition in order to make you beautiful and to marry you. He deals with our idols. And he gives us himself. When we know him, he deals with the crud in our heart because he loves us and he sets us free. I mean, what idol can hold a candle to that? What will save you more thoroughly than that? Look, God's answer to our idols is a Savior that actually saves and sets us free. And so I'll end with this. I guess it was now like eight years ago, April 2009, a 30-year-old guy named Lynn Manuel Miranda, you may have heard of him, uh, he gets a call on a vacation from the White House, and they were asking him to come to the Rose Garden and perform for the president. You see, Lynn Manuel Miranda had just wrapped up a Tony-winning uh, play, or I guess Broadway show, that he'd done called The Heights. And it had won a Tony. He was pretty successful. He gets a call from the White House and say, hey, will you play, come into the White House and do something from the Heights? But what they didn't know was that on his way to Mexico to do a well-earned vacation after the Heights had wrapped up, Lin-Manuel Miranda had bought an 800-page biography of Alexander Hamilton. And he'd read that thing on the beach in Mexico, and he was captivated by Hamilton's life. Because he saw in his life, here's a guy who's kind of an immigrant like me, trying to make his way in America. And he saw something of the guys that he grew up with in the Bronx. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to do something that nobody's done with Hamilton's life. I'm going to make a hip-hop Broadway show about American history and Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) And if you had said that to me 10 years ago, I would have been like, eh, it's probably not going to do that well. (laughs) but he gets this call from the White House and he says I don't want to do anything from the heights I want to do this new thing that I've been working on about Alexander Hamilton's life I think it kind of works with the White House kind of deal can I do it and Barack is like sure I don't care (laughs) and so he goes and he does the opening first number from Alexander Hamilton about his whole life which you've ever seen the show is amazing. And everyone's jaw just drops in the White House Rose Garden. And it's like, dang, man, keep working on that. (laughs) And he does. And several years later, it starts as an off-Broadway show, which sells out on its very first performance. A month later, it goes to on-Broadway, completely sold out and has been sold out ever since then. It's nominated in its first year for 16 Tonys. It wins 11 of them, including Best Broadway Show. It won a Pulitzer Prize. It won a Grammy. It's on course. I think at this point it's probably surpassed it to earn a billion dollars gross. That's successful, y'all. That's real money. (laughs) Barack Obama said that mutual love for Hamilton is the only thing that unites him and Dick Cheney. It's crazy. (laughs) It's this incredible uniting force. Look, from a beach in Mexico to the Rose Garden in the White House to a Broadway show to your Spotify playlist, Lin-Manuel Miranda was captivated by this guy's life because he read a book about a guy who lived a long time ago, and it changed his life, 
Look, what you need to deal with your idols, what you need for your life to be changed, what you need to find real freedom and real joy and real hope, is not a new idol. You need to read about a man named Jesus. And to find that man dying for you and for your idols and for the stuff in your heart and setting you free because he loves you. That's what I need. That's what you need. That's the secret to really loving people as they are, to really being in community with other folks, is to know Jesus and to be set free by him. And that's my offer to you tonight. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would set us free in Jesus to know you and to know ourselves, to be free from our idols, that our lives would be changed by him. Lord, that we would seek significance, not in all the things we can do, not in all the things we're afraid that we won't ever get to do, but Lord, that we would seek it in him, that he would give us his life and his love, and that we would be set free. Help us to find ourselves in him. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Help us to rest in him tonight. In your name we pray. Amen.